When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think the village has an opportunity to help children do better in school, maybe not get bullied as much or, or be the bully as much because they get on the right path earlier. And it has the opportunity to help parents. And to me, this is a great way to fight poverty. I think education overcomes poverty more than anything else. That's why I feel passionate about it, is that it's, it's a way to give people a hand up instead of a hand out. And I think that the, there, there are too many daycare centers and people that call themselves preschools that, are, that have the profit motive more so than a charity that can really care about the kids. There's, there's no money that comes out of the village that, that isn't paying somebody's salary who's working there all the time or buying equipment for the village or uh, investing in facilities or curriculum and things like that. So, so we can have the best curriculum. We can, we can replace computers when we need to because nobody's trying to get a return on an investment. tuning into Dreamcatchers, where we make things happen. Dreamcatchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dreams. Are you ready? So the guest today, I have the awesome opportunity to interview Clark. If you have been listening to the Dreamcatchers calls for a little while and have listened through the podcast, you've heard me mention or reference um, Clark time to time. And this is really an awesome opportunity for me because he was one of the first calls that I listened to when I started with the team, and the call was so amazing to me how thoughtfully he laid his story out. I felt like at the end of um, each little piece he shared with us, he would come back and um, kind of give me a summary of kind of what I was to take from that, what he learned from that, and just continue to weave it into the next piece of his life. So super excited to be the one who is interviewing you tonight. Hello, Clark. How are you? Hi. I'm doing fine. Good deal. So welcome back. We are super excited to to learn from you again. I always learn something interesting with each conversation about your life and your travels and how you're able to apply new things that you've learned. So I want to start the conversation by you giving us a little bit of your uh, professional background. Sure. I'm an engineer. I graduated from Penn State University with a mechanical engineering degree. And when I was in school, I participated in a cooperative work-study program. And uh, back then, you could go to school for six months out of the year, two terms, and work for two terms. 
And if an employer chose to do so, they could uh, sponsor this co-op program where you would be paid for working. And if you lived frugally while you were working, you could save enough money to pay for college. And I was very fortunate to work at West Penn Power Company, learn about engineering on the job, and then get the theory at Penn State. And working helped me tremendously because it gave me the perspective of what I needed to know versus what they wanted to teach me in school. When I graduated, I continued in the electric utility industry by working at Pennsylvania Power and Light in Allentown, Pennsylvania, in their environmental department and then later in their fuels department. And it just seemed like there were always opportunities to take a fork in the road all the way back to high school. I got into that co-op program that I mentioned because my high school chemistry teacher brought a pamphlet in and threw it on my desk and said, uh, you should look into this and become an engineer. And I wasn't on that path at all, but he directed me and I took that fork in the road and went to Penn State. And uh, I've been in the energy industry for decades now. So you made an interesting comment about what they wanted you to learn versus what you needed to know. Can you kind of unpack what you mean by that? When you, when you work, you're solving problems that have meaning. The results are going to be applied either by solving a problem at a power plant or making things safer, lowering emissions, and you're solving a problem with a goal in mind. And it's not about deriving formulas and coming up with answers to theoretical problems that your professors created just to challenge you. So it's applied science on the job and theoretical science sometimes in the university. So upon graduation, you go off to work in the energy sector you've shared. How many, how many different places have you been able to go in your career? How many different companies? Well, I was at uh, Pennsylvania Power and Light. I co-opted with West Penn, and then there was no obligation when I graduated for them to hire me and no obligation for me to continue to work for them. So I did get an offer from them, but I got an offer from Pennsylvania Power and Light that I thought was more appealing uh, in terms of the kind of work that I would be doing. So I went to work there in their environmental department, and my first assignment was to work with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to get permits to discharge water from our power plants was a new permitting program that was going into effect and all of our plants needed new permits and uh, I got the opportunity to prepare the applications, negotiate the terms of the permits, take the permit writer to the power plants and show him why I was wanting what I was wanting in the negotiations and, um, and we got all those permits. And I kind of took a breath after that and there was a job open in the fuels department a brand new job that they had created there and it sounded interesting so I put my hat in the ring and interviewed for that and up until that point that was probably the hardest decision I had to make because the new job was so exciting the old job had been good to me I liked the people that I was working with and I was kind of stepping out of my comfort zone so I wrestled with that decision for a couple days until I finally decided to go to fuels and do a, a brand new job related to uh, planning the fuel supply for a new power plant. And it was interesting and exciting. And I did that until that strategic plan was completed. And then the company was starting to get interested in using their byproducts, the ash that the coal creates when it's burned. And they said, uh, we should be using this ash or selling it if there are applications that could use it. Um, we should have somebody to head that up and investigate the opportunities to use our ash. So I put my hand up for that job and started the ash marketing program for PPNL. And that went pretty well. And then I got recruited by a headhunter to go to Babcock and Wilcox, Ohio. So I left Allentown, Pennsylvania, moved to my family to Ohio and uh, worked there for a couple years. And then my client, the Electric Power Research Institute, hired me. And, and the theme of all this is that at no time was I really looking for opportunities. I just kept my eyes open and paid attention when those opportunities presented themselves. And it would seem like things just continued to unfold before you. Are there any paths that you took, because you referenced earlier uh, having you know so many forks and kind of in the road, are there any paths that you took that you would look back and say, um, although, although I went this direction, 
I probably would have been better served going the other direction. There are times when I've thought about that, but I can't say that I should have done something different because if you interrupt the time continuum, as they say in Star Trek, you don't know how the outcome is going to go from that point forward. So I could have stayed at PPNL and earned a uh, nice retirement package and been relatively happy, but it may not have worked out for me family-wise. I may have taken the wrong job at PPNL and been miserable working there. The same with Babcock and Wilcox. If I hadn't gone there, then I wouldn't have had the opportunity with EPRI that set me up for the next 20 years when I ran my own company. So I, I don't think you can go back and look in the rearview mirror and ever say, things would have been so much better if I wouldn't have done this or if I would have done something else. Because you, just like you can't drive your car in the rearview mirror, you can't live your life looking back all the time. I thoroughly agree. You mentioned, of course, your family. Did you have to transition a lot? Did you all have to move a lot to accept the opportunities that came your way? Well, I got married when I still had some college left. I had two years of college left. And in the co-op program, uh, my job was in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, and Penn State is in State College, Pennsylvania, and those were at that time about a three-hour drive apart from each other. So we lived in a mobile home, and every six months we packed up our mobile home and moved it either to Greensburg or from Greensburg. That involved a lot of moving, obviously, and getting used to new surroundings, and every six months my wife changing jobs. But we did that for two years. And then we, when we settled in Allentown, we took our mobile home with us and lived in that for a few years while we built a house, well, got some money together and built a house and moved into the house. And then Allentown to Ohio and Ohio back to Pennsylvania. So we moved, but I wouldn't say that they were big cultural changes. It wasn't like moving from New York to San Francisco to Dallas to Atlanta. Uh, we were in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Culturally, it's pretty much the same. Well, I could imagine that provided, I guess, some level of comfort. At least it would have for me to not have to go from climate to climate, give you an opportunity to kind of feel like you're still grounded. Let's go back a little with your career. Uh, you talked about um, having been in the energy sector and not that wasn't where you were thinking you would be when you were in high school. You had the teacher who provided information that, talked about engineering, which uh, kind of piqued your interest there. Did you have other pivotal people in your life that put things before you or shared information with you that would help you to choose a certain path, whether it be professional or personal? Well, in, until I was 29 years old, I had my dad. And uh, I would always talk to my dad about almost anything. And um, uh, then when he passed, uh, it it was more about people at work. So in my first job when I was co-oping, I had two gentlemen at West Penn Power Company who were, I would say, my mentors. Sometimes if they were working on a project, they would ask me if I would help them. And I didn't always feel like I was a big help. I was doing tasks that they assigned to me, but I think they were asking me to do those tasks so that I'd have the learning experience and um, uh, personal growth and also get some visibility in the company. So those two guys sort of took, took care of me, looked after me, mentored me, uh, took me on field trips. I'm going to this power plant or to see this installation. Uh, come on, get in the car and go with me. And then at PPNL, Pennsylvania Power and Light, I had the same thing. I always had a, a person who I felt was looking after me or coaching me. And the reason that I left was because my mentor got promoted up two levels, and the guy who took his place wasted no time telling me that I was 30 years old and that I had advanced by 30 years old above where the other guys that were 30 years old had advanced. And the next move probably wouldn't come until I was about 40 because it was just unheard of for people under 40 to be managers at PPNL. And that was sufficiently discouraging that he had a great influence on my life, essentially prompting me to leave the company when I got an unsolicited <laughs> offer from B&W. Um, so, go ahead, I'm sorry. There was, there was always somebody that, that I felt was either opening a door or creating an opportunity for me. 
So that's amazing because not a lot of people experience that. I think I I heard Jerome speak of that same thing. What kind of energy do you think a person must carry to have those types of opportunities put before them? What are you doing (laughs) or how are you um, connecting that, you know, gives people the thought to connect you in these ways or what, how do you get them to tie back to you or to think of you in those spaces when they have opportunities that they think you might be interested in? How do you get them to put you in position? Well, I think accidentally my high school teacher put me on the path by suggesting that I be an engineer and get into this co-op program. But I stumbled through, through his efforts. I stumbled into an industry that I'm really passionate about. I can't think of any industry that makes a product that's more important than electricity. And as we have more computers and cell phones and all that stuff, electricity is becoming more important to our daily lives than it ever has been. So I'm just totally passionate and enthusiastic about electric utilities and power plants and electricity and providing people with this needed commodity. And so I think that passion turns into enthusiasm on the job. And when people see somebody who is enthusiastic and passionate about what they're doing, they're more willing to help them than somebody who's just seeing it as a job. What, what time do I have to come in and what time can I go home? And, and what's the minimum requirement to get by and, and get the raise or get the next promotion? I was always eager to learn, and I think other people could see that. So you shared an interesting story about one of the positions you held. Well, actually, at, at that point, it was, I believe you were working at a, was it a fuels warehouse? Can you talk a, a little bit about that or um, the company that you may have bought into in your first store, in your first yes. um, town with us? Babcock and Wilcox was in Ohio, and I worked there a couple of years, and then the Electric Power Research Institute hired me. They were my client, one of my clients, and they hired me to run a $20 million research and development facility in Pennsylvania and relocated me to Pennsylvania. And I had uh, about 30 people reporting to me, and it was a tremendous opportunity. And um, it grew, and we ended up probably with about 50 people working at this research facility. And it had a 10-year mission. And at the end of the 10-year mission, uh, most research facilities close down, and uh, they're decommissioned because they've satisfied their objective. We were approaching the the end of the 10 years, and, and one of my mentors said to me, you know, there are a couple of choices here. At the end of this 10-year mission, we could shut this facility down, decommission it, and you could go to work someplace else, or you could relocate someplace else with our company. But I've also been thinking that there may be an opportunity here to create a company. And do you think you'd be interested in creating a company that might sell research and consulting services to power companies and coal producers and the Department of Energy and other folks, do you think you might be up for that? And I said, well, I think I might be up for it, but I've got other people that work for me and I don't know how they feel about it. So let us think about it and talk about it and maybe look at the business opportunity and I'll come back. So he gave me a couple months because we still had other work to do. And I talked to my coworkers and we thought it was a pretty neat idea and we had faith in our ability to pull it off. So we put this business plan together with some projections about how much revenue we could generate and how much our expenses would be and how much money we could make. And we took it back to them and said, we, we want to start a company and we want to spin it off, spin off this research facility and the people will all go to work for the new company. The research facility will be owned by the new company and, and we'll go our own way. And, my mentor said, that's a pretty neat business plan. Let's just do that as a subsidiary of our company. So we'll set it up as a separate company, but we'll own it for now and get it started. So we started the company, and I was the CEO. And for four years, we did engineering and consulting work. And uh, after four years, we had enough money that the employees bought 80% of the company from EPRI, the company that started it, and we became 
20% owned by EPRI instead of 100%, and the employees owned the other 80%. And four years later, we bought the rest of it so that it was 100% employee-owned from that point forward. And we ran for 20 years, reinventing ourselves from time to time. And around uh, 2004, we again did a business plan, and we decided to start with the money that we had earned at that point, leave it on the table, and that was one of our forks in the road, and start some new facilities. And one was taking sawdust from lumber yards where they manufacture wood doors and trim and flooring, take that dried sawdust and make it into wood pellets. And these wood pellets are used for heating in, in stoves. You can buy them in Lowe's and Home Depot and places like that for about $250 a ton or uh, $5 a bag. And we make these pellets, put them in bags, uh, put them on pallets, and sell the pallets to local hardware stores and other places. And we did that. We bought the equipment, started a factory, and made these wood pellets. In parallel with that, we also bought a power plant that burned biomass, uh, waste wood, hurricane debris, uh, clippings from people's yards, all kinds of things, and made that into electricity. So we burned it, made steam, and made the, ran a turbine to make electricity, and that was in Florida. And a third venture, we made biodiesel fuel from soybean oil. And then as our fourth venture, we started pre-finishing hardwood flooring. Basically, we would get flooring from manufacturers, people that made the, the flooring for, out of trees, and then we would run the flooring down a, a production line and put seven coats of stain and uh, polyurethane coating. It wasn't polyurethane, but it was like that. It was a latex coating um, that made pre-finished flooring, and then you could buy it at Lowe's or Home Depot or a local hardware store and install your own flooring or have a contractor do it for you. And it wasn't our label, but we did it for the manufacturers. So all four of those businesses were going really well. And we had plans for expansion of all four businesses, either by adding equipment in our existing facilities or starting up new facilities. And the recession came, 2008. And we couldn't get any capital to grow our businesses even though we had a bank that had previously told us that they would finance the growth. All of a sudden, the purse strings got really tight. Because of the recession, people weren't building houses. People weren't re refinishing houses. And there wasn't as much sawdust available. So we didn't have sawdust to run our wood pellet business. We didn't have any hardwood flooring to finish because the people that made the flooring were idling their wood processing facilities. And the biodiesel plant was entitled to a tax credit, which Congress failed to extend in time because they were busy wrestling with bailing out the banks. So we had, basically we had four facilities and none of them could operate at design capacity and they were all consuming cash. And with, when the expenses were exceeding revenues, we had to start selling off our assets. So we sold off these factories paid our bills, and in 2010, we all went our separate ways. And uh, that was a tough time because I had to lay off people that had been with me in some cases for more than 20 years. I had to, then had to find a job because I was the last one without a job, so I had to uh, reinvent myself at that point. So I don't think I understood in the first call. So these businesses were running simultaneously and not concurrently? They were all running yeah, all running in parallel. They were all uh, commissioned in 2004 to 2006 time frame. It was basically all the earnings that my shareholders, basically my friends and employees who owned the company, all the money that we had made, we reinvested in those four manufacturing plants, and all four were affected by the recession, and we couldn't recover. So we, when we all got laid off, it meant we also had all forfeited the money that we put into the company because the stock didn't have any value. So when you went on to reinvent yourself, can you walk us through what that looked like? What did you do next? I started a little consulting company and uh, was getting paid by the hour, which is the worst way to get paid. But I was billing myself out as an as a energy consultant and working for some of the folks that had been my clients before in the bigger company. And I did that for about a year and a half. A friend of mine was going to work at CH2M Hill, 
to be the um, power sector business development leader. And he asked me to go to breakfast with him, and he said, if I take this job at CH2M Hill, I'd like you to come with me and be my business development guy. And I said that I was interested, and when he got the job, then he called me and hired me, and not, not long after that, he hired Jerome. <laughs> so we worked together at CH2M Hill. I didn't. Mike was a friend through the industry. We had been at conferences together. We had worked on things together in professional organizations, but I had never worked for him directly, and he had never worked for me directly. But having that contact, uh, again, opened that door and provided a new mentor for me so that I could relaunch myself. So what happens next? So you go on to um, work for him and then... Worked for him. The company, after a couple of years, decided that they didn't want to pursue... The, well, the company lost money in the power sector, so they decided they didn't want to continue to take the risk of working in the power sector, so they shut down our whole group, and 1,200 people uh, lost their jobs. But I had met another guy at CH2M Hill who basically pulled me out of the ashes and said, uh, why don't you come to work for me in the wastewater treatment group because we want to sell wastewater treatment services to power plants, and you know enough about power plants to be very valuable to us. So I went to work for him for a couple of years, and he ended up leaving the company. And when he left the company, I ran into this company called Pure Stream Services that has a new technology for treating wastewater. And I convinced them that they needed to hire me to help them with business development. And I've been with Pure Stream now for three years. That's pretty awesome. Again, how things continue to unfold, those opportunities. Um, so you have another passion that you shared with me some time ago, the village. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that project came about and kind of what the village is? Sure. If we go rewind all the way back to West Penn Power Company, there's this couple of mentors that I said I had there. One of them uh, was a guy named Bill, and I kept in touch with him for many years until he passed away. Um, but at one point he said to me, um, I'm going to a charity golf outing and uh, I bought a foursome and I'd like you to go with me and be in my foursome and ride in my cart and we can catch up from old times. So I went to this golf outing to spend time with my former mentor and we went, played the golf and then after the golf uh, they had a dinner and at the dinner I found out that this charity was a Catholic charity that tended to babies while their mothers went to school. And I thought that was just the neatest idea that if they were willing to babysit these babies and mom could get an education, at that time there, there weren't any single fathers in their program. But, and, and they were also counseling you know, not to have abortions because they would help in this way if the mom had the baby and so forth. Um, and I, I didn't think that was necessarily attractive to me. I, I didn't want to get into that debate about pro-life and all that. But I was really fascinated by this idea of getting the moms a chance to get educated, and I thought it was a neat idea. So I went to this charity outing about three times with Bill, and I said, you know, that would work in the town where I grew up and where I went to church and where this high school teacher was that put me on the engineering path. So I contacted two women who one was retiring as an elementary school teacher, and the other one was about to be an empty nester having raised three daughters. And I asked them what they were planning to do with the rest of their lives, and they said they needed to do something, but they weren't sure what it was going to be. So we took a field trip to one of these daycare centers that this Catholic charity was running, and uh, we saw what was going on there, and we talked about it. And on the way home in the car, I said, I'd really like to start one of those. I think it would be neat, and we don't need to preach messages about abortion or anything like that, but to have an opportunity for single parents to get educated and have an educational program for their children and not just the daycare, that just seems like a really cool idea to me. And one of the ladies said, who are you going to get to run it? And I looked at her and said, why do you think I brought you? And, and that's how it started. Those two ladies started the village with me, a friend of mine is an attorney in Washington, D.C., 
and he did all the attorney work for free to create the charity. And um, the first year, those two ladies got uh, one baby who was six weeks old and took care of that one baby and didn't charge anything. They didn't get any pay or anything. And then the next year, we had several children, and we rented a, a room in a facility and have grown now to the village has uh, 73 children at a time, not all full-time. There's 44 full-time equivalent children at the village, some of whom are on scholarship, meaning that their moms or dads are full-time students either in college or nursing school or truck driving school or high school, whatever it might be. And we have another group that are subsidized care because their parents are classified as, as working poor. They can't afford both of them are working, and they still can't afford child care, so the um, county will help to subsidize it for them. And then we have other children that, because the educational program is so good, their parents pay uh, market rates for their child care. And we're nationally accredited and state licensed, and because of that, the university asked us if we would have a second facility at the university, and a benefactor donated millions of dollars to the university to create a preschool. It's uh, ages three through five at the university. And in that case, the benefactor is paying the tuition for 20 children who could not otherwise go to preschool, paying for them to have preschool and also paying for scholarships for 10 college students who are interested in learning early childhood education and getting a degree in early childhood education to be working in the facility with us, hands-on with the children. So it's, it's a wonderful opportunity, and it, it all came because a mentor took me to a golf outing. So with your partnership with the university, are you able to utilize any of your students to help as your teaching staff? We have been accessing the university students when they graduate to come to work for us as lead teachers. And then while they're in school, they work part-time as aides and assistant teachers. So we had been doing that for the history of the village. Now it's a more structured program where they have these 10 students who get scholarships who are expected to be at the village part-time and do lesson plans and actually teach some lessons and help with classroom management and things like that as part of their college education. So it's, in effect, a co-op program, just like I had when I started um, for these teach these students who are getting a scholarship. And what ages are the children um, who attend the village? There's the 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 one at the university is preschool. It's ages like three and a half to five. So they go from from that institute in, right into kindergarten. And at the village that we first started, the the bigger one, we start at six weeks and we go to kindergarten five years. And how long has this been? The program been in existence? The the bigger one, the original village, is 13 yes. years, and the one at the university has been in uh, operation for about six months. So you all have been able to see uh, or get some feedback from the schools about the preparation work that you do with the students. Can you tell us uh, some of that feedback? Yeah, we've had um, first of all on the parent side, we've had 20 parents who. Um, used our services who went on to graduate from college. We've had others that graduated from high school and nursing school and things like that, but, but 20 actually went to college and finished and got degrees, and they're out working and earning a living now for themselves and their kids. And we've had uh, about you know 70 children per year in our program, some part-time and some full-time. But the feedback from the local school district is that when the children get there in the kindergarten, they don't have to spend as much time teaching them how to work in groups, teaching them how to manage their time, paying attention. They've, they've gotten those skills from the village. They can all write their names. They can read, you know, basic reading skills all before they get to kindergarten. So the, the teachers have been very complimentary about what our teachers have done with the kids before they get to kindergarten. And the, the best thing to me is it has no, it makes no difference what the economic status is of these kids. They're all performing well in kindergarten, whether their parents don't have any money and they're being subsidized 
for their care or their parents have lots of money and they're paying the market rate for their kids to be there when they get to kindergarten they're all shining that's awesome that's a, a great model do you have parents or students who kind of graduate out of the program that come back to inquire as to whether or not you all would do some tutorial work with those students to kind of keep them on track? Well, we have two things. We have some of the kids, when they go to elementary school, kindergarten uh, through fifth grade, actually come to the village for before and after school because their parents are working. So they'll drop them off early and they'll get the bus from the village to their school or the bus will drop them off after school and they come back to the village. So some of our teachers are, are tutoring these children when they're in grade school and they keep in touch with them and the bond that they made when they were two years old uh, carries through until they're in fifth grade if they come to our before and after school program. And we did have a parent who got a degree from California University and she moved to uh, central Pennsylvania and she's now the manager of a preschool. Started as a teacher and moved her way up and became manager of a preschool. So she's out there giving back, basically. Oh, wow. So what is your why in all of this? This is vastly different from the career path, but you're very passionate about um, helping children as well. I think the village has an opportunity to help children do better in school, maybe not get bullied as much, or, or be the bully as much because they get on the right path earlier. And it has the opportunity to help parents. And to me, this is a great way to fight poverty. I think education overcomes poverty more than anything else. That's why I feel passionate about it, is that it's, it's a way to give people a hand up instead of a hand out. And I think that the, there, there are too many daycare centers and people that call themselves preschools that, are, that have the profit motive more so than a charity that can really care about the kids. There's, there's no money that comes out of the village that, that isn't paying somebody's salary who's working there all the time or buying equipment for the village or uh, investing in facilities or curriculum and things like that. So, so we can have the best curriculum. We can, we can replace computers when we need to because nobody's trying to get a return on an investment. I was just going to say, I think it's the best model for child care is to make it a charity and let people donate money and, and take it off their taxes. And uh, companies support the village through our fundraisers. A great model, I think. So is there a story from your childhood, whether it be your own personal experience or just the observation um, from those who were around you that led you to take this mission on? No, I think the thing that impressed me the most was when I went to that golf outing and I, I saw students who had stayed in school and had free daycare because of the Catholic charities um, and how they were making something out of their lives. I think that's what inspired me. I didn't, I didn't go to preschool and I didn't go to kindergarten because they didn't have transportation when I was a child. You had to be in first grade and go, you know, full day to get transportation, and we didn't have a car. So maybe maybe in the back of my mind I feel like I missed out on something, but uh, I never thought of it that way. So you have been in business in your original location for 13 years. You've just expanded to, to the university campus. What's next for the village? Anytime you go into business, you know, your business philosophy, your business goal is always world domination. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, we're, uh, we are interested in working with other universities and planting seeds in other locations. So uh, I think we're open to other, other campuses. We're also talking with an organization in Pennsylvania that is starting a, an apprenticeship program for preschool educators. So if somebody who didn't have formal training uh, because they've been out of the workforce or they're just graduating from high school and they don't want to go to college. But if they're interested in early childhood education, they could become an apprentice. And for a certain amount of work on the job and informal training, they could earn a certificate in early childhood education. And then if they went to take some classes at the university and got enough credits and continued to work, they would earn an associate's degree and then they could continue to college if they wanted to and get a bachelor's degree in early childhood education. And 
they don't have to take the train all the way to the bachelor's degree. They could jump off at, at the certificate level or they could jump off at the associate level. But each of those levels that they achieve would get them a higher pay and a better job in early childhood education. So this, this program is just being formed in Pennsylvania, and we're considering being the, the pilot program for it. That moves you from taking care of just the child to basically taking care of the family yes. from an educational perspective. That's pretty awesome. More of a holistic approach to, to helping families improve. It's pretty awesome. Well, when, when I was a child, more than half of the homes had a parent at home. It wasn't always this, the mom, and it wasn't always the same parent. Sometimes it was a tag team arrangement. But there, there weren't as many child care facilities, and there weren't as many preschools. And child care was the mom or the dad, depending on who was there at the time, and, and the neighborhood. Because back then it really did take a village to raise a child, and everybody in my neighborhood had the um, authority to handle me if I needed to be handled in any situation. <laughs> So it's it's different now, and I, I think if we can work on the family holistically, we'll all be better off. So tell me what's... It, I should say retirement, but I don't see it out there. So I, <laughs> I'll probably keep working where I'm working until it's not fun anymore. If I do retire from this, I might go to work doing something else, or I might devote even more time to the village and growing it. Well, I think it's pretty awesome that you were able to mention earlier, kind of reinvent yourself um, to come back from the loss of the companies back into the work sector, kind of identify what you'd like to do and be able to market your talent in that way so that you'd pick a position or so that you'd have a position that um, you really enjoyed with that um, special set of skills that you've learned along the way um, to have that chance encounter at golfing and 13 years later um, be able to impact so many lives, so many children and, and their families, right? Because when you're giving care to a child, it's not just about the child, but it's also about the parents. The parents have to feel that their child is safe. They You, you become really an extended part of their family by taking care of of their little ones. So I just, it's always pleasurable for me to talk with you, but just to think about some of the things that you've been able to do and the way that you've been able to touch people. And you're, for anyone who would come into contact with you, you're just so reserved. And even, I think, even when it might not be the happiest day for you, you're smiling. <laughs> and that energy is radiant. You can just really feel it by being in your presence. And so, you know, I, I have to think if that's been my takeoff of the few times that I've seen you, those people who um, get to share your company often are very lucky. Well, there was a gentleman who sat on my board of directors at the company that I ran, and uh, I embrace his philosophy on life. And we're from Pennsylvania, so this is particularly important to us here in Pennsylvania. He used to say that a good day is any day that the groundhog doesn't deliver your mail. And so... There's always reason to be upbeat and optimistic. It, it's not bad. You woke up this morning. How bad could it be after that? Indeed. If <laughs> <laughs> someone were to describe, describe you, what would they say? If some of your closest friends were to, to present an award to you and they're describing who Clark is as a person, as a friend, as a mentor, as a boss, what would they say? Optimistic, faithful, and not afraid to fail. It's hard to say that about yourself. It's hard to say anything complimentary about yourself. But <laughs> one of the things that I found the most amazing is that when, when our company was in such trouble, I had a couple guys who kept saying to me, you have to have an ace up your sleeve. You always do. You have to have a way to solve this. And, and it was it was both a compliment and also <laughs> it made me sad because I didn't have another race up my sleeve. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was it was pretty cool for them to think that you know there was that no matter what it was we'd always come back from it because I'd find a way. But the I don't picture. give up easily. Yeah. My wife would use the term stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know if you accept anything that people offer you. 
you'll you'll never you'll never achieve, right? Because people will often say no just out of you know convenience to them. Um, right. There's always a way to succeed if you work hard enough at it. I feel that way in make, trying to make a deal. I'm currently working on a deal with a client, and <clears throat> I feel like they want to pull the trigger, and I feel like they pull, should pull the trigger and close this deal with me. And they keep raising roadblocks, and it would be easier to say, you know, you're right, we can't make this work, but instead I keep coming back with alternatives. Well, if, if that's your concern, then let's look at it this way, and let's try to see if we can rearrange things to do it better for you. And um, just keep working at it. Well, um, it's always refreshing when they offer you the why because it allows you to do that problem solving, right? Yes. I mean, you've got some folks who just um, who don't give you those answers and don't allow you that opportunity to address them. That makes it a little, a little more challenging. And then you just, I think, in those times, have to determine that okay, so um, maybe this isn't a path I should be walking down. Well, that's where um, that's where my mother comes in. I mentioned my father before, but I'll mention my mother now. Um, one of the lessons that my mother um, instructed me on, I'll put it mildly, um, especially when she was upset because I had done something wrong or said something smart back to her, she would say, you know, son, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. And I think so often we don't get the business deal that we wanted or we don't get the outcome from some negotiation that we wanted because we're not listening to the other person. So along with the stubbornness is a responsibility to listen to what they're saying and take what they're saying about their perspectives and their problems and their issues and their input and solve the problem for them. That is the game of business. It is. So Clark, we're over three years into Dreamcatchers and you're still hanging around when you've got plenty of better things to do. I deeply appreciate your unwavering support for so long. But why dream catchers? Why, why spend your time on that? To the degree that I can help people and, and be a mentor and ask the right questions and, and help them along, I want to do that. But I also think I'm not done. So when I get on those calls and I listen, use those two ears that God gave me, um, I learn something on every call. Sometimes it's something I can use immediately, and sometimes it's just information that will rattle around in my head and come out six months later when I need it. But anytime there's a, a group of smart, successful people in a room or on a call, there's an opportunity to learn and contribute. And I think Dreamcatchers is a, a great forum for that. I think it's important, and, and there's... There are other organizations, but sometimes they're too organized. You know, you got you know the Rotary and the Society for Mechanical Engineers and, and all kinds of other organizations, but there's so much politics and there's so much administration and so much bureaucracy, and uh, this is just about getting results. And to know that we really do have people on the calls who are achieving, it's just, and they're everyday people, you know, they're not... We're not talking about people that you might um, see on TV or maybe one day you will. I just love the fact that it's it's organic. You know, it's these are people that have crossed paths with you know someone in the tribe at some point, mm-hmm. um, and it kind of you know just reminds me of the premise of the six degrees of separation, right? I, I don't know you, but I know somebody who knows somebody or whatever. We get together right. on the call and you feel connected to the story because usually there's some, there's, there's struggle and there's triumph. And many of us have you know, been through those phases in our lives at some point so we can identify with it and we can connect with a person who is sharing their story. And so mm-hmm. you just kind of walk away even cheerleading for the person who is, you know, talking about, you know, whatever their um, perils were as they were kind of working through um, the the story on the call. You're, I find myself kind of secretly cheerleading, okay? I know that you're talking about a place that was really bad, mm-hmm. but I know you came out of this. You're, right. you're on this call and, you know, we, it's just all of the energy. You can feel the energy and the love that is kind of, you know, radiating from the audience, even if you can't see these people, um, to that person who is 
um, kind of center stage. So I really think that's awesome. Yeah, the one uh, the the one thing I think about sometimes is after we've had one of these calls and it's really great and and you're filled with enthusiasm for the person, then what? Other, uh, other than you who I have formed a, a bond with, the other people, I don't know what's happening with them. You know, there's, so what happened after that, a call that we heard two years ago, um, did they make it bigger? Are they struggling again? Um, do they need more help? Um, a way to go back and get a status report, I guess. Um, and that is why the powwows are happening and are going to be happening more frequently. Okay. Because I think that is the next step. And I mean, it's something that you and I talked about 18 months ago. Mm-hmm. But getting people together in a space and, I mean, right or wrong, these folks are celebrities to me. I mean, they mm-hmm. they do some pretty amazing things, right? And yep. so then to get the opportunity to hang out with them and hear them outside of the recording tell their story and look into their eyes and see the emotion that might not have translated because they were nervous on the phone. Um, it's just, it's probably the most exciting thing in my world right now is the thought of harnessing the power of all this energy and focusing it in you know, these remote locations with a very select group of people with the hope that that collective group will go back out, recharge, energize to go take on their next pursuit. Right. And knowing that, you know, the folks that they just sat with believe that they're going to do it and in a lot of cases have done some pretty amazing things already. So, mm-hmm. you know, if he can do it, well, sure, I can do it too, Right. I mean, regardless of what the story is, it's got to work out yeah. for your betterment. So, yeah, I think that that's one of the things when we were talking before about you know these people are celebrities, um, these people are successful, but they're not Mark Cuban successful. You know, they're not so successful that you can't envision yourself getting there. You know, that they're way more successful than me, but they're not so successful that I can't aspire to be like them. Well, if yeah. I hear the Mark Cuban talk or somebody like that, it's like, yeah, sure. I, I don't have enough years left <laughs> to make as much money as Mark Cuban <laughs> and own my own teams and stuff like that. Um, I absolutely think there's a gap in the marketplace. And I experienced it when I was in corporate America. I was a first or second level engineer, and I wanted the CEO of a – 17,000-person company to be my mentor. Mm-hmm. And the question that I was asked is, what do you guys have in common? How can you possibly relate your view of the world, the company, and his mm-hmm. view are completely different? You, you guys are too far apart to yep. make a real connection. I disagreed with the position because I felt like there was an, there's always an opportunity to exchange if people mm-hmm. are open to it. But the gap that you're describing is the gap that they saw. And you need yeah. those intermediate steps in order to make progress towards that goal, whatever you're chasing. So, If you want to learn more about Dreamcatchers, please visit the website at dreamshouldbereal.com. If you can think of someone who would benefit from these types of opportunities and are willing to share what we're doing with them, we would greatly appreciate it. Get it how you live, and that's just what I did. You know I hustle all day and all night, boy. You know I hustle all day and all night, boy.